Okay, let us pray together. Lord, we thank you for giving us uh, this uh, time and place. We have gathered together in your spirit. We ask you, Lord, to calm our thoughts, hearts, and minds, and our soul. Help us, O Lord, to be focused on your word and on your grace. May your grace truly touch us and awaken us, enlighten us, and open our eyes so that we may be able to see the truth that uh, truly makes us free. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for your presence uh, tonight uh, with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, last week, uh, we have uh, laid out the first introduction. So there are some people who came first time today. So I'd like to uh, review a little bit uh, for uh, you. Uh, I mean, a lesson is always a repetition. Uh, uh, people who come to Wednesday uh, morning Bible study, they come on Friday, they come on Wednesday, and they read 10 times uh, the same passage. I mean, basically, uh, real learning is repetition. Uh, one thing bad about uh, religious education, uh, Christian education, is that, you know, you come on Sunday and you listen, and then the next Sunday you hear another uh, message, and then just come and pass by, come and pass by. Uh, like uh, instead of uh, that, I think we need to let the word sink in. Uh, uh, for the word to have transforming power, it has to sink in. Uh, you know, I know is a very elusive uh, expression. Little kids can say, "Oh, I know." Uh, really, really a well-educated uh, person can say, "Oh, I know." I know is a very elusive uh, 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 kind of uh, term. Uh, in uh, Christian journey, I know is a very dangerous uh, expression, actually. I know is a very dangerous uh, attitude that we should uh, uh, think about and uh, try to avoid. The more you enter into God's world, you, what you're saying is, I don't know, rather than I know. Because you're encountering the bigger mystery, the bigger world of God. When you enter into your own small religious world, then you can say, I know. Of course, because it's small. But when you enter into the real world of God's mystery, what you say is, you just open your mouth and, ah, oh, I don't know. This is what I thought I knew. But I don't know anymore. Like the same Paul saying, I know God's love. And then when he met Christ on the uh, road to Damascus, what he said was, I don't know uh, the, the, the mystery. And then mystery has been revealed to us. So it, repetition, repetition. Don't think that I know it. You continuously uh, repeat yourself. And then... Romans, the letter to, uh, to Romans is a powerful book. It is a powerful book once you enter into it. For example, uh, ourselves, we call ourselves, uh, we call ourselves uh, Protestant. Uh, Protestant began uh, with the reformation of Martin Luther. And then how Martin Luther began his reformation? Through this book, Romans. As he read Romans, he started understanding uh, God's grace. And then from there, he, started, he said that before uh, he really did not like God, who is really scary. But after I found that grace, I started liking God so much. I mean, he was a monk. Uh, Catholic monk, but he had a tremendous struggle. But you know, without even that struggle, you cannot even experience transformation. Uh, at least we should be able to struggle with my sin. Uh, then, oh, you think about what grace is like, but if you 
you don't even think about your sin, then grace uh, doesn't really mean much. But he struggled so much. And then uh, when he truly discovered God's truth through Romans, he studied Reformation. And that's how we our religion began. Uh, uh, Protestant religion began. How about, you know, Methodist? Among Protestants, uh, there's Methodist, Presbyterian, Methodist. Methodist, uh, the uh, founder of Methodist is John Wesley. John Wesley, well, on one day in London, small street, uh, in a church like this, he attended the Bible study, and on that day, they happened to teach Romans. And as he studied Romans, his heart was, became hot, he said. His heart became hot. And then uh, tears started uh, pouring out, and then there he met God. And then from there, he started uh, the, Reform I mean, uh, the Methodist movement. And then uh, now you know Methodist Church. The United Church right now. In Canada, but we don't have Methodist Church. Methodist, uh, Congregationalists, and Presbyterian, three churches gathered together and made the United Church. Uh, so some Methodists are left, but uh, most Methodists went into uh, United Church. And, and uh, that's how uh, it started. How about Carbar? 1950s or 60s? You know, during that time. When you say liberal theology, liberal theology is not open theology. Liberal theology is a particular period uh, in our Christian history. Uh, in the 1950s and 60s, uh, they denied everything, uh, actually, uh, about the scripture and uh, so it was a very, very strong movement, liberal uh, uh, theology movement. And then uh, Karl Barth, uh, he came out and then he said, while he was reading Romans, he said, it's like a bomb exploding in my head. I understood the God's grace and God's truth. And then he started as a neo-Orthodox movement. So uh, Karl Barth uh, is a very famous uh, theologian. So, and then you know famous story of uh, Saint Augustine. Uh, he used to you know, really, uh, you know, uh, yeah, kind of uh, sexually uh, kind of corrupted and all that. And then uh, after that, he uh, experienced children playing, and then think of it, read it, think of it, read it, and then he kind of took it as God's message for him. So he opened the book, and then that was Romans, and then through Romans he became a saint uh, after this. So it's a powerful book. Uh, so I hope that we uh, all understand uh, these Romans, and then we enjoy uh, Romans. Okay, so last week, the uh, important thing was Paul was describing all the uh, sins of the people, and then What's the core of our problem? What is the core of our problem? Futile thinking. Futile thinking. The thinking that has no fruit. Thinking that goes nowhere. It's like an empty thought. It's almost an empty ego. And bloody ego, empty ego, that I can do on my own kind of thinking. I can build my salvation. I can have my salvation. And it is from futile thinking what was uh, resulted. See? I know. It's very elusive. <laughs> You know, when I tell you, say, I know, but when I ask you, what is it? You don't know. So, I mean, important thing is, uh, oh, oh, yeah, I know the progression. The important thing is you understand the flow. The important thing is that, I mean, reading the Bible, understanding is not important. Uh, oh, yeah, this is what it means, that it's not important. Uh, what is the flow? What is the flow of Paul's thinking? So, from futile thinking, what was resulted? Eh? 
idolatry. And then biggest idolatry was what? Idolatry of yourself. So biggest problem is self absorption. Self-centeredness. I mean, within self-absorption, there's religious thinking is part of it. And Paul was not attacking the people who are outside and doing all kinds of evil and bad things. Paul was attacking those who are very religious, very righteous, law keepers. These are the people Paul was talking about. What you're doing is not really righteous. You're just self-absorbed. You're into yourself. You think that by keeping the law, you can make yourself righteous. Let me tell you about your condition, your spiritual condition. You say that you know the law, and you teach other people what to do, what not to do, but you don't keep it. You yourself are not able to keep it. It's not because they are necessary, they are the only ones who are hypocrites. You don't even know that you don't have power to keep it. You don't have ability to keep it. It's not because you're a bad person there, or you're telling people what to do, and then you don't do it. It's not that Paul is not talking about that kind of hypocrisy. You don't even know your lack of ability. You cannot do it. And you don't even know that. That's who, who I was like. I didn't even know that I was persecuting God. And then I was persecuting God. I didn't even know that. So that's what Paul is saying. So, uh, in other words, from self-absorption and self-centeredness, the greatest problem was blindness. Blindness. We don't even, we don't know, we don't see it anymore. We don't see. Uh, we cannot focus. Uh, we cannot see God's grace. So, that was the biggest problem. And then, uh, what Paul, Paul is saying, Jews and Gentiles, First, he described the Gentiles' uh, problem, and then he talks about, then are Jews any better? And then he talked about, oh, Jews and Gentiles are the same. Jews and Gentiles are same, Paul is saying. What does that mean? Why is that important? Why was that important to Paul? In what way? They're the same. And what is important? Sinner. The fact that you're a sinner. So then, what did he learn about sin? What did Paul learn about sin through by saying this? Before he thought that Jews are not sinners, the Gentiles are sinners, because they don't keep the law and all that, and the Jews are okay. But now they are the same. They're all sinners. Yeah. Ashley? I guess more like it's universal and God doesn't show favoritism. Universal. Universal. And what does that mean, universal? You're very good. You're very good. But what does that mean, universal? When, we, when Paul said, oh, your sin is universal, when, when you say, oh, sin is universal, what does that mean? Okay, sin is not defined by action, but what's going on in your heart. Okay, so uh, that's good. And what else? We are all equal whether you keep the law or not. Or whether you're Jew or not, right? In what way? What, what is Paul really, really trying to say? What is really? I mean, it's a key. If you don't understand this, then you don't understand Romans. We are all short of the glory of God. We are all short of the 
the glory of God. And what Paul is really saying is this. He thought that he could control sin. And he realized that you cannot control your sin at all. Sin totally controls you. Sin totally controls you. That's what he discovered. Well, here and there, you, you do the good things and the good works and then you are an okay person. Paul saw that. Sin totally controls you. That's what he discovered. In that sense, Jews and Gentiles are the same. Jew, you think you control sin? No, you are not controlling sin. Sin is controlling you. From the top to the bottom, we are totally controlled by sin and we are totally helpless and powerless. That's what he discovered. Not because you're doing bad things, but even when you do good things, you're sick. Even when you do good things, you're sick. That's what Paul discovered. Because he was doing all the good things, even persecuting Christians uh, on the way, uh, road to Damascus and all. It was all good things, but he realized that even that, he was blinded. Sinfulness is total blindedness. Do you understand? So far? That's what Paul is saying. And then, now, Paul is saying, okay then, we have no hope. We are totally controlled by sin. Then what do we do? Is there any way to get out of this? Get out of this predicament of sin? So Paul I mean, in the beginning, chapter 1 to uh, chapter 3, verse 20, he was narrating all that. And then, can you put uh, the slide, first one, please? I mean, this is a description of our sin. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues, are, tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's a description of who we are like. Uh, that total, uh, you know, corruption. Uh, so then, we have no other way to deal with our sin. And he introduces what is that alternative today. That's why today's uh, scripture, it begins with, apart from the law, God's righteousness is revealed from the law. Because law could not do it. Law could not deal with our sin. No matter what law you have, that law can, cannot help us deal with our sins. Then in what way uh, our sins can be dealt with? That's what we are going to study. Okay? Uh, is it good enough for introduction? Is a, a review of last week's? Okay, let's look at today's. Uh, you know, when I, I did the ver, uh, my version uh, again today, but my version is longer even <laughs> than the actual scripture. Why? Because I had to decode. I had to decode. Certainly. For example, uh, uh, Paul said, atonement, uh, sacrifice of atonement. You don't know what it means, so I had to decode what that means. Uh, and then, uh, by believing in Jesus Christ, uh, uh, and then he just says it, 
and I had to enter into Paul's thinking, and then I had to uh, open it up, and then explain a little bit. That's why my version is a little longer. But we are going to read uh, scripture first, and then you read on your own. Chapter 3, verse 21 to chapter 4, verse 25. But now, irrespective of law, that's the scripture. It's pretty tough, isn't it? It's really hard to understand what is he trying to do, what is he trying to say. Uh, about what I said, uh, we human beings are totally blinded and corrupted. You know, I used to uh, think that that didn't really ring true. Uh, I basically thought that people are nice, generally good. And I still believe that people are nice and generally good. And I realized that sin is not saying that people are bad people. Uh, sin is basically saying that they're blinded. And then I understood. I realized how, how blinded we are. And not only myself, but when I look religiously uh, devoted people, how blinded they are. Uh, and then secularly so in, uh, uh, people who are into secular uh, kind of uh, world, how blinded they are. I realize that human beings are really, really uh, easy. Uh, easy. So, the concept of sin is more like a blindedness. And then Paul, I think, is emphasizing on that quite a bit. It's not, uh, Paul is not just talking about, oh, you are morally that person. That's not what uh, Paul is talking about. It's a more like a blindedness. So uh, probably it's a very hard to uh, uh, digest what you just read. So I'm going to read uh, my version. Uh, it's a little longer because I have to really expand it a little bit. So we'll read it together. First of all, I had to say what God's righteousness is. God's righteousness is revealed. But I had to uh, say what God's righteousness is. So uh, when we look at the version, yeah, God's righteousness, you received it. Uh, God's righteousness is basically God's loving desire to save humanity. People were so absorbed in themselves and blinded that they could not see that. The law could not open their eyes to see the loving desire of God. If even the law could not do that, then who could open our eyes to see that? It was Jesus Christ. The fact that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to us was the expression of God's loving desire for us. The faithful life of Jesus Christ showed how much God loves us. But people killed Jesus, but his sacrifice was not in vain. His death exposed how sinful people are, but his resurrection exposed God's strong will to save us. Even the sacrifice of Jesus Christ showed how much God loved us. Through Jesus Christ, God showed that there is more powerful force than the power of sin. When we believe this ultimate loving desire of God, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ somehow has the healing power to open our eyes and let go of our self-centeredness. Believing and understanding the loving desire of God is very important. It has a powerful effect on us. Yes, our sins are so deep and powerful that we alone cannot overcome our sins, but God's loving desire is greater than the power of sin to the point of the power of sin being swallowed up by the grace of God. This grace was God's gift. That no one can boast about themselves. The only way to overcome the deeply penetrated power of sin is through believing in God's loving desire to save us, which was shown clearly in the life and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. 
Whether you are circumcised or not, that is not what is important. To begin a new life of freedom, there has to be this faith in God's loving desire for us. I'm not saying that we should throw away the law, but when we see the law through the eyes of faith, we'll be able to see the loving desire of God to save us, which is hidden underneath the letter of the law. I think that's basically summarizing uh, uh, chapter 3 for uh, 10 verses. Uh, I kind of uh, opened it up a little bit. And then let's look at chapter 4. Let me give you an example. Like Paul's letter, uh, this part is uh, divided into two. One is theory, the other is example. So he, he finished the theory part, now he gives the example. Let me give you an example. Let us look at our ancestor Abraham. After all, the whole thing began with him, and he was the beginning of the Israelites. Did he gain favor from God because of his good works? Then he has something to boast about. But even our scripture says that Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. If one gets paid for the work he or she does, then it will be a wage. In other words, if one worked for his righteousness, the righteousness would be what he or she earned. But if you did nothing to achieve your righteousness, but you became righteous by God's forgiveness, the righteous, righteousness would not be what you earned, but it would be God's gift for you. This was done by God's loving desire to save you. That is why our ancestor King David said, Blessed are those whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one against whom the Lord will not reckon sin. Then, is a circumcision a precondition to receive this gift? I don't think so. Abraham received this gift before he was circumcised, so it could not be the precondition. The circumcision was only the visible sign of the righteousness he already received from his faith. Faith came first and the circumcision. From the beginning, God did that to make Abraham as the ancestor of faith, not of circumcision. God did that to show God's desire to call all the believers in the future to become righteous without circumcision. So Abraham is the ancestor of faith for both of those who are circumcised and those who are not circumcised. God gave the promise to Abraham and to his descendants that they would inherit the world. And Abraham's true descendants are not those who share Abraham's genes or the law, but those who have faith. The nature of faith relationship with God is like this. On God's part, God gives life to the dead and calls, it, calls into existence the things that do not exist. When Abraham had no child, God said he would be the father of all nations. On Abraham's part, he believed that promise. Hoping against hope, he believed. When we have no righteousness within us, we must believe that God's righteousness will be achieved in us and through us with the help of God. Abraham simply believed God's promise and his loving desire to save the humanity. That faith made him the father of all the believers. What Abraham began, Jesus finished. Jesus Christ believed God's promise, and he lived faithfully, and he died faithfully. But God raised him from the dead. That clearly shows that God would not give up his promise because of human sins. God would ultimately fulfill his promise, and Jesus' resurrection clearly showed that. that. This is a clear and definite sign that God's promise will be fulfilled in those who believe. A little bit long, so go home and read it again and see whether that makes sense. So we are going to uh, look at this. The power of sin is so strong and we don't even know how we are controlled by the power of sin. Uh, when we do obviously bad thing, then we know that we are controlled by sin. But when we don't do that, 
When we are basically okay, working hard and all that, we don't even know that we have control the power of sin. How it even dominates and controls my thinking. Uh, is there any solution then? Is there any solution? Do we have no choice but to be bound by our sins? I mean, we may keep the law for the sake of peace of our society. If you don't keep the law, then this society will be chaos. But we can keep the law and then make peace of this society so that we can at least live peacefully uh, without worry. But true redemption, true freedom, true joy, that kind of thing is not possible. Are we supposed to just live without commotion, just live peacefully, keeping the law so that everybody lives peacefully? Is that everything? How about inner freedom, joy, redemption, all that? That is not possible? So from 321, Paul is trying to deal with that problem. Paul said right in the beginning, now, irrespective of law, the righteousness of God has been disclosed and is attested by the law and the prophets. In other words, there is another way of showing God's righteousness and then apart from the law, and that was already spoken by the prophets and the law. Paul presents that our salvation does not depend on our righteousness, but on the work of God's righteousness. That's what he discovered. Our salvation does not depend on my righteousness, but my salvation depends on God's righteousness. And God's righteousness is basically, as I said, God's loving desire to save us. My salvation depends on God's loving desire to save me. That's God's righteousness. If God does not have that will to save me, I have no hope. But God has strong will and that loving, strong loving desire to save me. Then, salvation is possible. The core of human sins is self-absorption and blindness. And what will cure that? What will cure self-absorption and blindness? And a lot of it comes from fear. Fear. Fear of survival. What will cure that? Paul realized that the law could not do that. Law could not cure that. The, the law can only bring punishment. You do wrong, you get punished. So then all fell short of glory, God's glory. All sinned. Everybody sinned, Paul said in the last lecture. Then the result will be Jews and Gentiles, equally, they will be all punished. If there was only law, then all die. Punishment of sin is death. So all will die, and only God remains. Only God remains. And what kind of righteousness is that? What kind of righteousness is that? Only God remains, and all die. God can, God can prove all he wants that he was right. But the result is annihilation of humanity. Complete eradication and annihilation of humanity. Only God remains as righteous. And Paul, it didn't make sense to Paul. That kind of righteousness. What do blind people need to know? Two things. 
that, that they needed to know. The first thing is, they are sinners. They have to understand their condition. They're bound by their sins. They don't see, they don't see what they are supposed to see. They have to know that I don't see what I'm supposed to see. That's the first thing that we need to know. But another thing, second thing that you need to know is that we need to know what they can do to be free from this predicament. Not just knowing that, yes, I don't know, and I'm blinded. But another thing that we need to know is, how can I get out of this? What can we do to get out of this? Here, the law has a limit. Law can help us what we did wrong. The law can point that out. But it cannot show us what we need to do. It can show us what we did wrong, but it cannot show us what we need to do. It can show our past, but it cannot show our future. It can point out you guys all did wrong, but you cannot point out, but you cannot point to what you can do to get out of that predicament, to get out of that helplessness and hopelessness. Then, Paul found this, the working of God's loving desire to save us. He found that. The working of God's loving desire. When we cannot even work on my salvation, God was working His loving desire to save us within us. And that was God's righteousness to Paul. Destroying the whole humanity is not true righteousness. Saving power of humanity, that was the working of God's loving desire to save us. In other words, when we could not do anything, God was doing something. When we cannot do anything, God was doing something. His loving desire to save us did not stop where we sinned. Oh, you sin? That's it. You and I are finished. It did not stop there. It went beyond our sins. And a clear example of the working of the loving desire of God in Paul, to Paul was Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was clear, concrete evidence and example that God is working his salvation. Just because our faithfulness stopped, God's faithfulness did not stop. Jesus showed God's faithfulness. Jesus showed how much God loves us. So Jesus' sacrifice not only exposed human sins, but also exposed how much God cares for us. If Jesus' life ended with his death, then the sin would have won the victory. If Jesus finished with death, then sin would have won the victory. But Jesus was raised from the dead. That shows that the power of God's loving desire to save us won the victory over the power of sin that kills us. So this God's loving desire, this God's intention and God's will somehow released grace. It released grace. From that God's strong desire, the grace was released. And that grace was the power of God that brings about salvation and it is a 
gift of God. And grace has amazing power, more powerful than the law. And the power of grace has more power than the power of sin. Then, when is the grace released? When is grace released? Grace is released when loving desire of God to save us and our faith meet. When these two meet, grace is released. That's why faith is important. God's loving desire for us and when we respond with faith, then grace is released. An example is uh, Abraham. We'll look at it a little bit later. If you don't believe, no matter how much God has loving desire for us, if you don't believe it, it does not release God's grace. God's grace has no power, no effect. For example, when you're baptized, God's grace will be released if you have faith. But if you don't have faith, it's just water that wets your head. But when you take that, then grace is released. When you take the communion, if you don't believe it, then just a piece of bread and a little bit of wine that you keep. That's all. But when you believe, then grace is released and that has transforming power in your thinking and opens your eyes and see the beautiful work of God in your life. And as you see the beautiful work of God in your life, joy comes out, love comes out, and all these beautiful things start coming out in your life. And that is a mystery to Paul. This is something that law could not do. So it's a mystery of the Holy Spirit in a way. So I do believe that underneath Paul's theology, it is the Holy Spirit all throughout, from the beginning to the end. It's not human logic. It's human. It's something that he discovered. How this happened in his life. And he explained in a logical manner. But it's not just logic. It is something happened within him. So if you try to understand it logically, it won't make sense. But when you start understanding the loving desire of God, somehow, the peace and joy start coming out in your lives. And then we cannot explain what it is. We cannot explain what it is. You receive another scripture, story of Vinyan. Okay, you read together in your group. I mean, I've explained so far uh, the, uh, and then how that story uh, uh, reveals uh, Paul's uh, idea of salvation and in grace. Okay. Shall we look at it together? Here, I need your help uh, to understand grace. So, I mean, of course, parable uh, does not speak about everything. Parable has a certain direction, so uh, 
some groups may talk about all fairness uh, of this, uh, but I don't think it's a fairness that this parable is uh, talked about. But anyway, let us deal with this parable and then understand grace of God better. So, what do you get out of this parable? What is talked about? Yeah, that's you. Um, the first thing that I brought up in the group was that I noticed that in this chapter in Matthew, um, it has a lot to do with people feeling like they're owed something or entitled to something after they've done whatever acts. And it's very similar to what's happening in chapter 4 in Romans, where he's saying again, um, like wages are not reckoned as a gift, but as something due. So I feel... For me, that was what stands out to me the most, is that I don't know exactly what that means about Paul's understanding of grace, but it definitely shows the human condition. We tend to be so self-absorbed that we're always constantly thinking that faith or grace is owed to us for doing whatever it is. You're entitled to. Yeah, entitled to. Uh, all the good things that you have. Mm -hmm. yeah, very good. Even for the people who came up at 9 o'clock, they had nothing to, uh, no work to do. And it was by grace of uh, the owner. Uh, he brought that. And you want to work? You have not, no job. I'll give you a job. So the owner yeah, gave uh, grace, right? Very nice of you. <laughs>
Jews and the Gentiles, mm-hmm. who God faith first and all mm-hmm. that, but mm-hmm. he's sort of just telling us something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, we uh, Jewish people have said, uh, it's not fair. Uh, we have a tradition, we have the law, we have Abraham, we have prophets, and then uh, we have inherited all this spiritual tradition all this time. Uh, and the Gentiles didn't do anything. And at the end, they came in and they received the full salvation. We talk about that. We can't be happen. We are entitled to that salvation, but they are not entitled to that salvation. So the Jewish people could have said that. And Jesus knew the sentiment. The Jewish people feel that they are entitled. But in this story, the really the key is that no one really came at nine o'clock. Everybody came one hour before. But it is your perception. It's how you think. You think that you came at nine o'clock. So you feel that you're entitled to receive that. But Paul said, we all fell short of God's glory. We all came one hour before. We don't deserve it. We didn't do anything to deserve that wage. It's a free gift. But we don't realize that. The thing is, how you look at your life changed the lifestyle. The people who thought that they came at 9 o'clock, they quit. They were not happy. The people who thought that they came at one, one hour before were thankful. There was a joy. There was gratification. How do you look at your life? Do you look at your life as a wage? Or do you look at your life as a gift? Depending on how you look at your life, the quality of your life will change tremendously. All the good things that I enjoy right now, I don't feel that I deserve it. Many times, God gave me. I don't know why. Uh, 
I don't deserve it. It is a gift of God. And that is grace. And even Abraham, and Paul gives example, Abraham, who is the beginning of Israelites, the nation, through the Abraham, nation of Israel began, and then Judaism began, began all this whole spiritual movement began with Abraham. And then Paul is saying, did Abraham deserve what he got? No. He didn't do anything. He didn't do anything. God just gave him and made him to be the father of many nations. And then he's saying that, oh, he's the father of many nations. So he's not father of just Jewish nation. He's father of many nations. What does that mean? That means he's a father of all believers. Abraham received that promise. That promise began with Abraham. And then to Paul, that promise is very important. That promise, God continuously worked out that promise. So Abraham began that promise, and Jesus finished that promise. So God has promised. And then sometimes you your life seems to go wrong way and all that. But the important thing is that God who began a good work in you will never stop. Will bring it to completion. And that promise that God began will be accomplished. That when you came to the church, God gave you the promise that you will have eternal life. And that promise will not stop when you die. Even after you die, that promise will be fulfilled. And the eternal life will be given to you not because of you, but because of God's work and grace. That you have eternal life, even when you die. Even right now in our lives, even when we lose everything, that God, God's promise will never stop. It will continue to bring about the fulfillment in your life. And whether I believe that or not, that's what's important. Do you believe that God is working out His promise in your life or not? When you believe that miraculously, then grace is released and that grace will work out within you. If you don't believe that, then nothing happens. So, to St. Paul is believing that God's loving desire is continuously working within my life. It's very so, somehow, when you believe that, then your life goes on. For those who came one hour before, or it is God's uh, order's grace, that person's life changed. The people who don't believe that, who came out at uh, 9 o'clock, who thought that they came out at 9 o'clock, are entitled to what they do is complain. And there's no salvation in our life. In every small thing that we enjoy is by God's grace that we enjoy. While we live, and after we die, we enjoy eternal life. And that is what Saint Paul saw through death and resurrection. You die with Christ, you rise with Christ. Through eternal life. Numbers chapter 6 of Romans. Alright, so we'll study chapter 5 and 6. And that's, that's what uh, St. Paul is saying. We die with Christ and we rise with Christ, and that is baptism. Uh, 
this is called. So we'll look at chapter five and six uh, next week. Right. Any question? Yeah, Tom. See, uh, salvation is not 
It's not something there and then you receive or not. Salvation is a whole process. And then in some other parables, uh, Jesus said, kick them out. Right? So then throw them into the darkness. So that salvation is not something that you want, you have it. This is working out salvation. And even Paul said, work out your salvation. So you cannot just say, oh, because they are in dinner, they receive the salvation. Of course, Jesus is not really talking about salvation itself. Jesus is talking about the, uh, the people who are called by God, who receive this inheritance, how they should live. You know, they should live with gratitude and uh, you know, uh, loving attitude uh, rather than complaining all the time. I mean, uh, some Jews uh, thought that, oh, I'm entitled to uh, uh, salvation. Automatically, I'm, because I'm a, a children of uh, Abraham. And Jesus uh, just because you're a children of Abraham, that doesn't mean that salvation is guaranteed to you. Just because you came at 9 o'clock, that doesn't mean that it is guaranteed to you. So that's what Jesus is saying. So how we should take our salvation not for granted, but every moment, every day, we work our salvation in the process that as you die, entering into eternal life is uh, what's happening uh, in our lives, right? Any other questions? Very good questions. Good, good. So let us look at what Paul